Again, we'll be reading from Philippians chapter two, verses one through 10. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through what is in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exhausted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Amazing. Amen. How are you guys doing this morning? Got the 9 a.m. Are you all tired? You got your coffee? All right. So, like Scott said, we're in the middle of a series called Unwavering Joy, and we've been kind of walking through the book of Philippians. This morning, we're kicking off chapter number two, and we are going to be discussing the topic, Joy in Humility, as Paul continues to encourage the church at Philippi. Uh, and really, this kind of comes on the heels of him saying that we ought to live our lives in a, uh, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And so sometimes whenever we read our Bibles and you kind of go to the next chapter, you might you might think that it goes to the next thought, but that's not exactly how the Bible was written. So we added chapters and verses long after these, uh, these scriptures were actually penned. And so it's, it's helpful for us to be able to go into the Bible and find a chapter verse and locate where we're going. But in actuality, uh, although sometimes it can be formed out like that where it's a new thought, um, it doesn't always work exactly that neatly. And so we're just kind of, it's a continuing thought from what Paul was talking about in the former chapter. And he's going to give us some understanding, even more understanding, and how we ought to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And he's going to do so by talking to us about humility. And so Proverbs 14, verse 12, it's not going to be behind me on the screen, it says this, there's a way that seems right to man, and in the end it leads to destruction. There is a, a current that we find ourselves in, um, and, and there's a, a prevailing worldview, and, and many maybe, that we can um, succumb to, that seem like it's right to, for us and right to us to live this way, and God encourages us to be mindful that uh, man's way, in the end, will lead to destruction, even if it seems right, but that God's way is the only way that can lead to joy. <clears throat> there's, I would say, maybe no more clear depiction of that truth than in the clear, staunch difference between the way the world says that men and women should grasp power and influence for joy and how Jesus teaches us that we should grasp humility and lay down our lives for joy. So the way of power seems right to man. The way of control seems right to man. The way of admiration and applause seems right to man. And in the end, 
Paul teaches us and Jesus teaches us that joy and the only way to joy is not through any of those avenues, but through the exact opposite. And that all of those, both power and control and influence and admiration and applause, um, in the end are like fool's gold to the, to the Christian soul. That when we gain them and we actually are able to grasp them, they don't give what they promise. They're shiny, but they're worth little in this way of living. Paul says instead that humility is the way forward for us. Now, I, it, I find it funny, and you could probably resonate with this at some level. As people, we appreciate humility in others, and then we can be really averse to humility in ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, we appreciate it when someone else acts humble, and we do not appreciate it when you notice pride in another. But we're not as keen to recognize our own pride, and we're actually internally kind of averse to it. Like, we like the fact that others might applaud us or give us acclaim, and we're always kind of looking for it, even if we know we're not looking for it, we're looking for a way to assert ourselves. And so we're averse to this kind of humility, but when you see it in another person, you're like, man, that guy's a good guy, right? Or that, that's a great gal, because we, we appreciate it in others. Well, why? Because in the end, if someone else can be humble, it's easier for us to grab what we, de- what we desperately want, even if, we know we, if, even if we don't know we desperately want it, which is that power and strength. If someone else lowers themselves, it's easier for them to be a stepladder. Does that make sense? And so Paul, knowing this, he, he challenges us. And as I was preparing for this morning's sermon, I thought, we need to have a really simple definition of humility. Because I think if we can have a simple definition of humility, then it'll, it'll make it easy for us to kind of walk through this text. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon has one of the simplest definitions. I don't even think I gave it to the slide, guys. This is, uh, I'll, I'll read this back half here. But he just says, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Pretty simple. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. I love that because it helps me. It helps me to, rather than to have, try to figure out, because uh, here's what uh, Tim Keller says. He says, humility is so shy that the moment you start talking about her, she goes away. All right? Have you ever recognized that in yourself? You're like, I really want to be humble. And then you start obsessing over yourself and you're prideful and you're pursuit of humility. It's tough, isn't it? It's like you're thinking so much about, am I, am I coming across as humble or am I acting humble? And then in the end, you're very obsessive about yourself and it's pride that's even motivating that. So that's why I like Spurgeon's definition because it doesn't, it doesn't make me overthink it and then end up falling into the very thing that I don't want to do. He just says, listen, it's about making a right estimate of yourself. It's not about making yourself lower than you are and it's not about making yourself higher than you are. It's just estimating who you really are and being able to embrace that and live in that. He goes on to say this, think not that humility is weakness. It shall supply the marrow of strength to thy bones. Stoop and conquer, bow thyself and become invincible. So when we talk about humility or, or joy in humility, Spurgeon agrees. He says that if you, there's something about humility that looks like weakness, but it's really strength. If you stoop, in, if you stoop down and, and, be, and make yourself low, you'll conquer. If you bow yourself, you'll become invincible. There's a joy that actually comes from humility. Augustine says the same thing in a different way. He says, humility is the foundation of all the virtues, all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. There is something in humility that strangely exalts the heart. So there's something about humility that actually brings us higher and not lower, even though it seems like that's counterintuitive. You see, the world says that me-centered power and control was going to bring us more freedom and joy. And Paul tells us in this text that Jesus-centered humility and submission is what will bring us more freedom and joy. 
So before we hop into it, I'd love to pray for us. And it's hard because I am tasked to stand up here and talk about humility and for us to begin to consider this. And I think that it's difficult because the very temptation is for us to be self-reflective, which I think is good. And it's easy to become self-obsessive though. So what I want to do is I want to pray for us and ask God to help us to be, to allow the spirit to help us be self-reflective, but really not to be self-obsessive to look to him and to look to serve others. Don't spend a ton of time trying to mine uh, the recesses of the heart because then we can be so in love with ourselves and even the work that's happening in ourselves that we defeat the very purpose we're after. So let's pray and let's also acknowledge that in the end we need God's help, not a good word or a good sermon. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, amen? So pray with me. Father, um, I am humbled. I want to confess to you now that um, I feel the only way forward is to say that I am a prideful man pursuing humility, and I ask for your help. Holy Spirit, we pray as your children that um, you'd help us not to to hear this word and and become self-obsessive or self-absorbed, but that, God, you would do a a glorious work in us to turn our eyes both to you in humility and then orient us outwardly that we might serve our neighbor in love. God, we do, we do pray that this, this word would take root in our hearts. Those seeds might bear 30, 60, 100-fold harvest according to what your word has taught us. And so we submit ourselves to you, Lord. We, um, without bowing our knee physically right now, we bow our hearts to you and we ask for your help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's two major points in this text, I think, and they're pretty simple, uh, and we're going to walk through them together kind of line by line. Point number one is this. True humility is other-oriented. True humility is other-oriented. So let's read the first two verses here in Philippians chapter 2 again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul begins by discussing some primary virtues that are driven by humility. He, he says this, if, if you are going to pursue a life that is worthy or a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus, maybe it should look like this. We should be encouraging people. Well, why, why, are, why is uh, being encouraging people in Christ attached to humility? Well, if you're an encouraging person, that means that you are willing to be other-oriented by confessing the growth of others to them, right? That's really what that means. You notice the growth of another person and then you confess that or profess that to them. And you might do that publicly or you might do that privately, but what's happening is the posture of the heart turns outward. You begin to be oriented away from yourself and toward another. Okay, he goes on. If there's any comfort from love, well, why is comfort from love a sign of humility? Well, you have to be, again, other-oriented, turning your uh, lens outward to consider the plight of another in order to see that they need comfort. This make sense? How do you know if a brother or sister needs comfort if you're self-absorbed? Well, you're not even really even considering them, but when you lean in, when you look and see that maybe without tears in their eyes, there's tears in their soul, and then you look to comfort them from love, that's another oriented posture. How many of you have ever experienced this? I've been with people who are very gifted in this way, and I wanna say that not all of us are uniquely gifted with this gift of mercy, but I believe we're all called to be merciful, amen? 
I think that's true. Uh, but I've been with people who have a real gift of mercy. You sit at a, a restaurant table and a, a server might come by. And the server might, to me, look totally normal. They're asking for our drink orders or whatever. But I've been with people who are able to, to keenly tune in that something's wrong. You ever been with somebody like that? Like they just have this sixth sense about them? Uh, and they, they tune in quickly. Something's up with, and they start asking, hey, is everything okay with you? And then boom, it's like their heart starts pouring out at the dinner table. I'm like, whoa, that would not be my inclination. And also I feel awkward around emotions. So now I don't know what to do with my hands when they start crying. So I, you know, I, I, my, my temptations to go to the bathroom at that point, you know, but I try to stick it through. Um, but but what, what's really happening there is, yes, I believe there's a gift of the spirit involved, but I also think there's an other oriented posture of humility where you begin to consider what's happening. This person becomes not only transactional for you to get your drink order, but they're a human being made in the image of God. And you begin to take notice of their internal struggles and plight, and therefore comfort comes from that, from love. Paul says participation in the spirit. Well, how do we participate in the Holy Spirit? Well, in community, we collaborate alongside others. And in order to collaborate, it means you have to be a listener. It means you have to be other-oriented in the way in which you not just attend church, but belong to a church. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, it's important for us not to just see in our Western culture, the church is not just, to, just meant to be attended to, but the church is meant to be a place that we belong. We participate in the Spirit. And what that requires is not an individualistic mentality, but that when we come, we begin to build relationships that are meaningful, and that takes humility. He says, if there's any affection... Well, why is affection a humility term? Because affection means that we have to, again, turn an outward posture and begin to care for the heart of another. To have affection for someone, you actually have to see them, to know them. And then finally, sympathy. How is sympathy a humility term? Well, it's other-oriented in that you have to connect with the hurt of others to have sympathy over their concerns. Then he goes on in verse 2, and he begins to talk about how this humility results in a brotherhood or sisterhood of unity. And he says there's three major areas of unity that this kind of humility will begin to produce. Number one, he says unity of mind. And he actually says unity of mind twice. That our thoughts and our considerations of the truth begin to be united together in the same. Our love, our affections and our desires as we humble ourselves before God begin to look the same. And then finally, he uses this be fully of one accord, which I looked that one up uh, in my logo software because that's what people do that don't really know Greek. And it's awesome. I just move my cursor over it and then it tells me Greek. And I can double click it and it tells me the Greek and how it sounds. It's awesome. Um, and so this actual word for one accord means to be one sold, which I thought, and that S O U L E D, okay? One sold. That humility has a way of knitting souls together in the body of Christ, that we begin to be so united that we are of one mind, one heart, and one soul. If you, if you have a Bible or, you're, or you're, uh, you're able to grab one from the seat back in front of you, I wanted to read quickly Psalm 133. So if you could turn there, Psalm 133. should be also on the screen behind me. For some of you, maybe this is a familiar psalm. It's, it's one of the songs of ascents that they used to sing as they began to ascend to the temple. It says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. 
It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's one of my favorite psalms because it gives you a depiction of how sweet it is, how pleasant it is, how good it is when the people of God are unified. Now you can take that on the other end and say how difficult it is, how arduous it is, how harsh it is when the people of God live in disunity. But I want to focus on what Paul's doing here because what he's encouraging the Philippian churches in is to walk in humility so that they can experience this kind of good, pleasant relationship that we're meant to live in as the people of God. You see, humility opens the door for deep, meaningful relationships in your life because humility does so many things for your heart. Number one, humility allows for disagreement and unity to coexist. Have you ever, uh, maybe you've experienced this with your spouse. It's hard for you to disagree and then be able to acknowledge that maybe we just see things differently. Any spouse in the room that's like that? It's like your spouse says, let's just agree to disagree. And you say, that doesn't make sense. All right. That's no such thing as that, right? I'm right. You're wrong. You got to see now your wrongness. And that's called unity for you. Okay. But humility actually allows for this kind of, I don't necessarily, just because I feel a deep seated conviction about my rightness doesn't mean that I am right. And therefore I can still live in unity with someone who I disagree with. Now I do want to give a caveat and that, that, that is that Obviously, true unity requires for us to agree on something, right? So it's not that we can disagree on major things and still have unity. Major things being like who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You know, this is church unity kind of 101. We need to be able to be founded upon the rock. Even Jesus told us this. But I will say that what Paul's encouraging here and the words that he uses are majors and many times in the church and in our relationships with others, we can major on the minors because of pride, We don't want to find common ground on the majors only. We want everyone to be made in our image, not Jesus's image. You ever found that? Uh, First three years of marriage, uh, bless my wife's heart. She had to deal with me not knowing that what I really wanted was not for her to be conformed into the image of Christ, but for her to be more like me. And so we argued a ton and I thought this woman cannot just get it right. And then it was a swift rebuke from the Lord, however long end, that that the Lord said, no, you can't get it right. Because in the end, what I deeply wanted was for her to see things my way, not Jesus' way, do things my way, not Jesus' way, care about things that I care about, not care about things that Jesus cared about. And in the end, I was trying to mold someone and carve her into my image. And when she would bite back against that, nothing made me more mad. Why? Because in the end, I love myself so much, and I didn't even know that I love myself that much. Paul's offering us a different way. He says, hey, when that inner voice in you screams for justice, screams to be right, screams to be proven, humility allows that voice to be silenced while pride hands it a megaphone. says, say it louder. You'll be heard. You see, humility doesn't equate to acquiescing always in an argument. In fact, humility might even look like confrontation, but it's confrontation for the sake of unity, and therefore the tone that humility takes is the exact opposite that pride takes, where humility takes a tone of care, of love, of deference. Pride takes a tone of anger, arrogance, and domination in a conversation. You guys ever experienced that? It's like you don't know why it frustrates you when one person says one thing and then somebody else can come along and say the exact thing and it doesn't land with you the same. It's like, oh, I could receive it from them. The tone, does it come from pride or does it come from humility? 
Paul encourages us that we should approach it from humility. Humility opens the door for the relationship because it offers a broader perspective. Humility allows you to see things from somebody else's perspective and not just your own. Humility opens door for relationship because it's motivated by faith and not fear. You see, pride's motivated by fear that you're not, that you're not gonna get yours. Pride's motivated by fear because you're not gonna be heard. People need to know what you think. They need to value what you think. They need to listen to what you say. And humility is motivated by faith, which is even if no one hears what I say, God has heard me. God loves me, God values me, God, God knows me, and that's enough for me. Even if in this conversation of 10 to 12 people in my small group, if I never say my peace, God has heard my peace. Now we obviously know, and I think some of us who are maybe more introverted need to hear this. People need to hear your voice as well, and that can be an act of humility, okay? So some of you are just like, ooh, thank God, don't have to talk in home group. Well. No, I'm telling the loudmouths like me that we should chill out, all right? But for you, maybe the act of humility might be sharing because it's vulnerable. Humility opens the door for relationship because it communicates to others that they are valued and doesn't try to protect your own value. See, when we walk in humility towards another, we're better listeners. People around us want and desire to sit and have a conversation with us because we listen not through them to the next thing we're going to say, but to them. See the difference? You ever found that in yourself? I found that in myself, that sometimes I have such pastor lenses on that I'm not listening to someone, I'm listening through them. I'm listening through them to the next thing that I should say and offer, when sometimes what I need to do is listen just to them and hope and pray that the Spirit gives me something helpful to say, and if I don't, then maybe that means I wasn't meant to say anything. (laughs) See, pride makes me feel like I have to say something because if not, then what would people think? They don't, I don't have the advice. I don't have the answer. I'm not the guru. I'm not the sage. And Jesus says, that's true. You're none of those things. Humility opens the door for relationship because it's most in touch with reality. What is that reality? Well, the reality that God is the only one that is good and great. Humility is in touch with that truth and it it humanizes us. It allows us to embrace our humanity. And by embrace our humanity, I don't mean embrace our sin or embrace our unholiness. It allows us to embrace our limits. It allows us to embrace our losses and not avoid them. Humility allows us to accept the fact that we're not all knowing, we're not all powerful, and we're not omnipresent. Those are reserved for God. And that actually that that humanizes you in a way that makes you more attractive to be a friend of. (laughs) Because when you try to be all of those things, it's very hard to be in relationship with you. Paul goes on in verses three and four, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So two major encouragements here from Paul count others is more significant than yourself and look out for the interest of others and not just your own. Well, let's take those one at a time. Count others is significant to you. So what is Paul saying? Others should hold a priority in your heart. Humility holds others in high esteem. Humility has a way of seeing our neighbor's life and not coveting what they have, but celebrating and longing for the good of our neighbor. See, we can look at uh, the victory of our neighbor and we can celebrate because deep in our hearts, we count them and their lives and their success as as significant and, and perhaps even more significant than ourselves. That's what Paul says. You see, when you read the 
the text in Romans 12 that says that we ought to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I think sometimes we wrongly think that weeping with those who weep is the most difficult of that. I don't think that's true. I think rejoicing with those who rejoice can be very difficult for us because it goes against our prideful nature. Sometimes when others have a victory, all it does for us because of our pride is highlight our losses. So we struggle to come alongside and say, I'm so happy for you. We might say that, but we say it with that like Joker-esque smile, (laughs) right? Which is kind of a mask. I'm so happy for you. And that can be like the, the lightest thing. Like, I'm so happy that something small and good happened, or it could be something very deep and wounding and painful. It could be something like struggling with infertility as your friends all have children around you, and you have to be the one to come alongside and say, I'm so happy for you, when deep down you were wounded. That's tough, isn't it? If we're not rooted and centered in Jesus, trying to ask him to minister to those wounds, It can be really hard to rejoice with someone who's rejoicing whenever it seems like the door of heaven keeps closing on you. It's tough. You see, humility can count others as significant because a humble person recognizes his or her need for others and is grateful for their presence in their lives and the gifts that they have to offer. I'll say that again. Humility counts other, can count other people as significant because the humble person recognizes his or her need for others and then is grateful for their presence and the gifts that they offer. Humility is when you realize you are not great at everything. I'm sorry if that was the first time you heard that. I didn't mean it to be mean. You're not great at everything. If you're an athlete in the room, there's probably at least one sport that you didn't get picked first in. And if you're like, yes, I did, well, then you're probably a terrible writer. <laughs> You probably can't spell very good, you know? There's so many things. And I think that many of us, if we're not careful, we want to be the best at all things. And therefore we, or we carve out this kind of little area of our lives where we can be the guru, we can be the wise one, we can be the top. So that no one has to come in and give us that harsh mirror that shows us that we're not those things. But see, humility is whenever you can acknowledge both simultaneously that I'm not terrible at everything. In fact, God's given me some unique gifts. But isn't it awesome that I can have friends and be in a relationship with people that they compliment the things that I am not? The first place that happens is in marriage. Men and women, if you go into your marriage thinking, I really don't have deficiencies, you'll never really be able to acknowledge that you need your spouse. They'll just kind of be the tag along. Well, you're here because it's what people do, right? We get married. But in the end, I don't really need you. And so what that, what that does is it always keeps your spouse at arm's length versus acknowledging that, you know what? I need you to be around in my life. What you offer to me and what you offer to our kids is indispensable. Humility allows for that kind of conversation to happen. Then Paul says, consider others' interests. Now, I think this is important because he says, not only the interests of yourself, but the interests of others. What is Paul doing here? He's saying, you have interests that you're responsible for, and you can look out and care about the interests of your brother in humility without totally neglecting your own. Why would Paul do that? Well, because Paul understands relational dynamics, and he also realizes the moment you begin to neglect your own interests, all, that weight doesn't go away. It just gets shifted over to someone else, right? So your neighbor begins to carry that. This is like the famous Galatians chapter six. Each person is meant to carry their own load or their own burden. And then right after that, Paul says, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what is it? 
Well, each man has been measured his own responsibilities, that he, his interests that he's responsible for, and then also to care about the interests of your neighbors, that inevitably in their weakness, they will need you just like you will need them, but don't neglect your own interests and then hope that everyone else will pick that up. In other words, care about your own interests, but don't get tunnel vision and build your own kingdom. Does this make sense? I can always tell my disposition about others based on how I talk about them and to them. Is that true of anyone else? This is a quote from a guy named John Ortberg. It's, it's pretty funny. I didn't, I didn't give it to John to put up on the screen, but he says, human conversation is largely an endless attempt to convince other people that we're more assertive, more clever, more generous, more successful than they think we might be if we did not carefully educate them on the truth. I love that. It's, uh, I, 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 I notice uh, my disposition towards people in, in mostly in my mouth. And Jesus kind of told us that. What did he say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I can always kind of check my dispositions on how I speak about other people, whether it be in private or public, or whether how I speak to them. And I think kids do this too, but kids don't have a filter. Like your kids, sometimes they can be, they'll say something and it's just like full on narcissism and we kind of laugh. We're like, wow. And as adults, we're a little more nuanced, but have you ever taken time to really consider like your speech? It's a really hard task sometimes to be self-reflective in that way. Why? Well, because words, if they're engaged with, with humility, they might look like encouragement, admonishment, rebuke, exhortation, all in the hope to bring life to others and to edify them. Or uh, words can be angry, discouragement, criticism, gossip, slander. Uh, words can be crafty, divisive. They can create dissension, discord, manipulation. Words can be arrogant, uh, indifferent, short, dismissive, um, our words are used for a myriad of reasons, and in the end, they kind of reflect this either prideful or humble posture of the heart. Like, our words are used to either gain control or gain prominence. They can gain acclaim, gain applause, gain love, gain acceptance, gain leverage, gain justice, gain revenge. All of these things we use our words for, and they reflect what's going on here, right? And Paul's encouragement here is that, that we ought to look out for the interests of others and, and, and count others as more significant than ourselves. And I think what our words can do for us is to become a mirror. Is that really the way we live? Maybe one question we should ask is, am I using my words for my own purposes? Or am I using my words to value others for God's purposes? That's a good litmus test about the posture of our hearts. C.J. Mahaney says this about words. Truly edifying words are words that reveal the character and promises and activity of God. They're cross-centered words. They're words rooted in and derived from Scripture. Words that identify the active presence of God and words that communicate the evidences of grace that you observe in others. These are words that flow from a humble heart. Okay, what else does Paul say now? Well, the rest of this uh, stanza is point number two. That if, if humility is other-oriented, it's important also that we say that true humility is Jesus-centered, right? So in order for us to be truly other-oriented, we have to be rooted and grounded in our humility on Christ. Because any other platform that we try to jump off from is gonna create a false start in our humility. We just can't, we can't do it apart from being rooted in Jesus. Why? Well, Paul's gonna tell us, starting in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Lots going on there, right? Let's talk about Jesus' humility, according to Paul. First thing Paul says is, although Jesus was in the form of God, what's he saying? Well, Jesus was God in the flesh. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. So for us to say that we worship Jesus Christ, what we're saying is we worship a God who exited the throne of heaven and put on wrapped human flesh. And not only did he, did he, he didn't come down as a 30-year-old man. What did, how did Jesus enter the world? An infant. It's incredible. Talk about the humility that it would take to go from heaven itself to the manger in the Bethlehem scene. Paul says, although he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Jesus refused to cling to what was rightfully his. That's an ultimate act of humility, isn't it? And there's a principle uh, in there that I think is tough, particularly for Americans. We are are very uh, pro our rights. I have a right. Jesus had a right, and he didn't take that right so that he could sacrifice himself for us. Then it says he emptied himself. Now, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of theological uh, debate around what that means. So I don't want to spend a ton of time trying to parse out those details. Instead, I just want to say, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, let's just see what the text says. Because it says he emptied himself by, what did he do? He took to the form of a servant. Meaning that Jesus, being the king of kings, became the servant king. He counted himself as a servant on the earth, walking the earth, refusing to rule and reign. Instead, what did Jesus do? He took the job of a carpenter, not the ruler of Rome. He didn't have a home to call his own. So instead of getting a mansion, Jesus just went from house to house and slept where he could. Even sometimes saying, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He ministered to who? To the politicians of his day or... Did he go and make sure that Herod knew that he was a miracle worker? No, he largely just ignored Herod and Pilate and all of them altogether, and instead he ministered to the lepers, the destitute, the sick, the cast out. He took the form of a servant on earth. Then being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, the the God of the universe became man. Jesus is called the God-man. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is so, so many things here, right? He obeyed the Father, and, and, and that obedience led him to death. But also, let's not forget that he humbled himself to obey the very rulers of the day that were wicked and evil. He was obedient to Herod as Herod ordered him to walk back and forth from his palace to Pilate to make a mockery of him. He obeyed him. Pilate, as he's sitting in Pilate's uh, house and palace, Pilate says to him, do you not know that I have the authority to take you and to kill you or to give you life? And Jesus' answer to him was said, there's no authority you have that wasn't given to you. And nonetheless, Jesus obeyed his voice. They put a cross on Jesus' back and said, walk it up the hill, the very instrument of torture. And when he could have said, no, he obeyed their voice. I mean, the very minuscule things that Jesus was willing to do, when they said, kneel down, and they chained his hands so that they could flog him, he obeyed them. 
The scripture says, like a sheep to the slaughter, he was silent. He never uttered a word, but he was obedient to them. He took their insults, their jeers, their mockery, listening to their orders. He knelt for them as they placed the crown of thorns on his head. He was silent, carried away to the cross when he was ordered to, weak and bleeding. And he even spread out his arms when they told him to, knowing they'd nail him. The ruler of the universe was willing to become a slave. The only righteous man to ever live was willing to humble himself to be treated like a criminal. And the the author of life submitted to death for you and for me. This is what Paul says when he says, this mind of humility we have in Christ because he's already modeled this for us. Jesus does not ask us to live a life he has not already lived perfectly on our behalf. C.J. Mahaney goes on to say, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit that we can establish. Only those who are truly aware of their sin can truly cherish grace. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. We never move on from the cross. We only get a more profound understanding of it. Isn't that good? See, we never, as Christians, we never move on beyond the cross. We only begin to see it more deeply and allow it to affect us more profoundly. See, humility definitely is other-oriented, but it can't be other-oriented unless it's Jesus-centered. Humility is rooted in the person and work of Christ because only at the cross can we get a right view of ourselves that C.H. Spurgeon was talking about. If humility is a right view of oneself, the cross is the, is the place that we get a right view of ourselves. Why do I say that? Because you might be thinking, well, that only makes me feel uh, bad, Court. And you said that I don't, need to, I don't need to be too low or too high. I need to have a right view of myself. Well, let's really think about the cross for a second. At the cross, most certainly, we are laid low, and we ought to be. We peer up at Jesus, we see the cost of our sin. We see the weight of our sin. We see the distaste of God the Father for our sin. The chasm that our sin has created. The depth of our depravity and the holiness of God. We are laid low. Where else is the holiness of God displayed like it is on the cross? There is nowhere. And yet, and yet, it's at the cross that we are also exalted because we peer up at Jesus. And even if you don't think this this morning, I hope that you will. You must think, God loves me this much that he would be willing to do this. God values me this much that he'd be willing to go to this length. God cherishes me and cares for me this much that he would go to this length to save, like John Newton says, to save a wretch like me. You see, it's at the cross and at the cross only where we are simultaneously humbled and exalted. This is why humility is only possible if it's Jesus-centered. You see, because of sin, we're all born trying to prove ourselves, trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to prove ourselves because deep down we don't feel like we're enough. We're broken. We feel the need to make our mark, prove our worth. We're trying to protect ourselves because we're convinced God really isn't for us. That was our first parents, right? When Satan says, oh, God doesn't really uh, want you to eat of the tree, not because he's for you, but because he's against you. He's holding out on you. Our deep mistrust in God causes us to struggle to view ourselves rightly. We avoid the cross because we can't trust that it's giving us the full truth. 
We can't, we can't simultaneously think that we're that broken and that God would love us that much. We can't accept it. We can't believe the gospel because we can't think how through something as, as dark as that death can life really, really come. And so instead, we struggle and walk in pride. But God offers us a different way. Paul ends this stanza by saying, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, I'll conclude with this thought this morning. The path to joy is by responding to the single greatest act of humility the world has ever seen with our own act of humility, which is bowing our knee before him. That's what humility looks like. And this morning, I'm not asking you to physically bow your knee, although you're more than welcome to. But what Paul tells us is that because of Jesus' greatest act of humility, that there will be a day that every person will bow their knee. And that we have this opportunity to, to experience the joy of that now. The offer of the Christian faith is wholeness through humility. When we kneel before Jesus, he exalts us with him. In Christ, we are our true selves, finally. We can have confidence without being boastful, courage without being arrogant, bold without being bombastic. It's only in Christ that you can have those things. And so this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper and we dramatize the gospel together again, it's an act of humility here by taking the Lord's table that recenters the Christian on the truth of the cross. And what is that truth? You are more sinful than you could ever imagine, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. And so this morning, if you're a believer, I want to encourage you to come and place your trust in Jesus all over again with humility in your heart by taking of the Lord's table. And if you're not sure if you're a believer or, or you are certain that you're not, I want to encourage you that this is an opportunity for you to receive Christ, to bow your knee now and experience the life and joy that he offers. If you'll stand to your feet, let me pray for us. Lord, I'm convinced there's no greater king than you. In all of your power and might, the way in which you have chosen to reveal yourself to us is as a humble servant. And for that reason, I gladly bow my knee before you. And I ask your forgiveness where my heart doesn't bow and follow. Holy Spirit, would you now come, open the eyes of our hearts as we take and partake of the Lord's table. Would you, would you begin to breathe this kind of humility that will bring joy in us? And don't allow us to try to grasp at the power that seems so tempting. But instead to lay it down. Unify us, Lord, as your psalm says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I ask my God, will we help us to be that church, help us to be that community of believers, that we have a disposition of humility toward each other that's rooted in the humility you exhibited for us on the cross. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may come and take.